when uh, when Dave Max and Eric sold a Condor and it became Blizzard North, I mean, they did get a lot of stock that they were able to sell, and, and they were you know driving sports cars, buying houses, and you know that didn't sit well with a lot of people. Um, well, I, I wouldn't even say a lot of people. It, it it was something that kind of simmered for a while and then boiled over later. But right off the bat, there were a couple of newer people. I mean, these these were all young guys in their twenties who you know, dreamed of striking it rich, making this, you know, best-selling video game. We're finally starting to get to the point where enough people have been in the industry long enough that they feel comfortable telling a little bit more about their own history in game development, and maybe, in some cases, worrying that they might start to forget some of the finer details. Uh, so it was really a pleasure to talk with David Craddock, who is writing a series of books about the development of the Diablo series and the history of Blizzard North, which used to be called Condor. We meant to write one book, and he's now writing three of them, uh, chronicling uh, everything that took place uh, between uh, the development of that franchise. And uh, we recently chatted about the first one, uh, Stay a While and Listen, How Two Blizzards Unleashed Diablo and Forged a Video Game Empire, book one, uh, which you can pick up on iBooks and Amazon and all those sorts of places uh, if you'd like to check it out yourself. Uh, But here's our conversation. Uh, So for people who aren't familiar, why don't... Why don't we just start out? Why don't you give the give the big pitch? What's your what's this book that that you're shopping around? Um, which I know is the the start of three books, but uh, for this first one, uh, why don't you break down for for people what it is? Sure. Well, the the first book in Stay a While and Listen relays the the early years of Blizzard Entertainment and Blizzard North. That's the studio that made uh, Diablo one and two. Uh, particularly, we start with uh, kind of the backgrounds of the founders of, of Blizzard North and Blizzard Entertainment, kind of how they got into games, why they enjoy games, how they started making games, and and their early years through the making of Warcraft. And the book goes right up through uh, Blizzard North finishing uh, Diablo one, and it, it's a biography, but it's written in kind of a novel-like style, so it flows really well. It's an easy read. And what I did was around my narrative, uh, I, I put in a lot of quotes from the interviews. That way, readers can get to know uh, all the developers, uh, you know, programmers, artists, designers, and so forth, as well as I did. That way, um, you know, you, you have more of a connection with them, almost as if they're characters in a novel. But of course, they're they're real people. And and uh, one thing I'm proud of is I know when my editing team. Uh, each member of my editing team finished the book and said, well, I like so-and-so the most because, you know, blah, blah, blah. They, they felt like they were able to identify with particular individuals and their stances and, and philosophies. And so um, hopefully, you know, the rest of the world has felt that way so far as well. Well, it, se- it seems like, you know, the approach you're describing is trying to do something that doesn't happen a lot in games, which is sort of humanizing the the people that, that actually create these games. You know, often we have figureheads, you know, a Hideo Kojima, David Cage, you know, there, there are, are big figures, but, you know, these games are made by many, many people, and there are many smaller stories in there, and it sounds like, you know, even the way you laid out the book tries to convey that in a way that you come away with a sense that, you know, there were a lot of people involved in, in the making of Diablo. Yeah, you know, really getting to, you know, to push the fact that these these were real people with real lives, real problems, concerns, and, and goals and ambitions was my main goal. Um, because, you know, if you go on the internet, you can read about the making of Diablo. I, I would venture to say humbly that it's not as complete as my 
account, but you know, <laughs> I mean, it's it's there, right? But you don't really get to know, like, oh, who is David Brevik? On, online, he's just the guy who started Blizzard North, but this, you know, you get to spend time with him, you go through, you know, a lot of his personal stuff, and the same with a lot of the other developers from Blizzard North and Blizzard Entertainment, and so I, I think that it's kind of like watching a featurette on a DVD, like, you enjoy the movie, but then you kind of, you know, peek behind the curtain and see, you know, you meet the people who did it and learn more about them and just the whole process, and I, I think especially in this day and age with video games being the biggest form of entertainment, I think more and more people want to go behind the wizard's curtain and, and really get to know the people who made their favorite games. So, so what attracted you to tell this story specifically? I would say that Diablo and Diablo 2 uh, are my favorite computer games. And if I had to choose between them, I would actually choose the first one just because um, I guess there are a few points that attracted me to the story. One was, if you look at games like Diablo and the first two Warcraft games especially, they're such products of their time. Like, you know, they're they're polished for their time, but they're also kind of, you know, held together with spit and bubble gum in, in a few ways. And that, that was kind of an era of gaming I enjoyed before it was this, you know, before games kind of went through the machine like a lot of them do now. And they were just so, there was a spirit to Diablo. I mean, from the from the soundtrack in Tristam and in the dungeons to, you know, just the very kind of loose way that you went about interacting with other players on Battle.net and, and just equipping your own character with gear. It was just, it was just very fun and personalized. It felt handmade. And um, also, uh, I've always had kind of a connection with Blizzard North. Uh, my uncle Brad worked there at the time. He became friends with a lot of those guys. They met uh, playing roller hockey and he was into networking and general IT support. And so, uh, as people read in the book, I mean, Blizzard North wasn't really focused on running a business. That was kind of a means to an end. So there were a lot of times when they would even say, like, we hired people to keep track of our checking accounts because we certainly weren't doing it, <laughs> you know. And so my Uncle Brad would go in there and get them set up with, you know, a stronger network. And over time, they just became friends. And so he started getting into betas, including a lot of the internal ones that that weren't public and he would pass those on to me and I just I loved the first Diablo that was actually Diablo was the first Blizzard game I ever played somehow Warcraft 1 and 2 passed me by as well as their console games like Lost Vikings and Justice League Task Force and I remember playing Diablo 1 on a uh, 46 66 megahertz machine with maybe 8 megs of RAM and so you know in that game your avatar can't run he only walks but my guy walked slower than everyone else's but I would still play that game so much, almost nightly, that I would close my eyes and the map grid was just burned against my eyelids. And so uh, fast forward a few years, I graduated high school, went out to visit Uncle Brad as a graduation gift from him. And he actually took me to Blizzard North. This was a week before Diablo 2 launched. Everyone there was very tired, but you know, kind of walking around with smiles on their faces. And uh, they, they got to show me the game. I remember a programmer spawned Diablo in in the rogue encampment, the first town, and, you know, Diablo was just throwing fire and killing all the NPCs, and it was just, you know, I've always had a connection to those games, and when I moved out to the Bay Area, um, I was pitching freelance articles to uh, official Xbox magazine, among other outlets, and I wrote about stereoscopic uh, 3D games, and Uncle Brad, once again, uh, kind of gave me the hookup. I talked to, through him, uh, Eric Sexton and Kelly Johnson, who were artists on Diablo 1 and 2 and were working with my uncle on uh, Ice Age Online, which I write, which I wrote for before that uh, went under. And I got to be friends with those guys and kind of built 
my Rolodex from there, fleshed it out, and started talking with them about this story. And uh, through them, more and more people just jumped on board. And it was really a labor of love uh, for me to do this because I've always had great respect for those guys. Uh, they probably don't remember meeting me when I came out, you know, some googly-eyed teenager fresh out of high school, but I certainly remember them, and, and it was a real honor to, to get to know them better and, and tell their story. So were you able to get access to some of the early Diablo betas then? Yes. Uh, there was, this is a story I, I recount in the book, there was uh, a deal that Blizzard struck with, um, oh, I can't remember the magazine, I think, I think they struck it with Microsoft, where there was what's called a Game Sampler 2, which was a collection of DirectX games for Windows 95 that Microsoft shelled out millions for to different companies such as Blizzard and id Software because at the time they were pushing Windows 95 and DirectX as the new gaming platform, you know, trying to get people to migrate over from making DOS games. And um, there, was a mag there was a demo that went on the Sampler 2 disc, and that came out in, like, uh, the fall, late summer, but I actually got to play it earlier in the year when it was still internal. And I, in fact, I have it somewhere. It's in my mom's basement somewhere. Uh, <laughs> and it is so many of our things. Exactly, exactly. And uh, I, cu I couldn't find it, but um, that was what I played. I believe it was two levels, and it ended at the butcher, who was you know randomly placed on level two. But in the demo, he was always there, and that guy just kicked my ass. And I remember I would play... It's kind of like playing MMOs today, like that South Park episode where the, the kids grinded wolves for like you know three weeks straight to level up uh, you know enough to, to kill the uh the hostile player i did the same thing killing like fallen and skeletons and zombies and was finally able to take on the butcher i don't think i ever beat him though but eventually he got his when the full game came out and and actually uh, i got uh, looped into betas uh, pretty regularly it was it was funny sitting in programming classes and listening to all my friends say like oh the, the starcraft beta signups are open i signed up i hope i get in and I didn't sweat it. I was a shoe-in every time. I was in every beta through the WoW Friends and Family Alpha. So that was... Uh, they also gave me the opportunity to play Blizzard's games at early stages and actually see their design and development philosophies in action where they would just take a lot of feedback and just kind of test something. And if it was fun, it stayed in. If it wasn't, they scrapped it and just or just smoothed it out, you know, whatever it was called for. You wrote a big book. It's probably hard to pick one thing, but if there was one tidbit or story that stood out, would you be able to pick one? I can, actually. This was actually, it's pretty easy. I think it'll be harder for book two because Diablo 2 is so much bigger and there were a lot more stories that I received from, from many more people. The, you know, the development team was so much bigger. Uh, for book one, though, uh, I remember sitting in a coffee shop with David Brevik. We would meet Every week, I would go to uh, Gazillion in San Mateo, where he and his team worked on uh, Marvel Heroes Online. And uh, we'd walk a few blocks down to Starbucks, get some hot drinks, just sit down and, and shoot the breeze for about an hour or so each week. And he told me the story of how he converted Diablo from real-time, like civilization, uh, to, oh, I'm sorry, turn-based, to real-time. And he thought it was going to take weeks, but he ended up doing it in, in three hours. He just got into his zone, and he said that when he finished, he, you know, he compiled his code, and he ran a demo, and he was the warrior, and there was just it was a small room with a skeleton at the far end, just a prototype build, and he clicked on the skeleton, and the warrior walked over, swung, and smashed it into bones. And he said it was like the light from heaven shone down on his keyboard, and he realized that Diablo was going to be this massive game from that moment. And I had that scene 
in my head for a good three years before I sat down to write it. And writing it was as as exciting and exhilarating as hearing it from Dave. And I'm really happy with how the scene came out in the book. So that's that's not only my favorite story that I was told from all my interviews, but just my favorite part of that book, you know, as a writer getting to put that down on paper was awesome. Now, it sounds like you were able to write the book because of circumstances that you weren't able to account for when you were younger. Uh, you kind of made it sound like a snowball effect. You got a couple people involved, but once these people were involved, other people said, hey, I want to participate in this too. Yeah, it, it was some of that. Uh, you know, Like I said, Eric Sexton and I got to be really good friends. I'd go over to his place, hang out, and we would play EDF uh, 2017 on Xbox 360 together. And, uh, you know, I was like, you know, I, I think I'd like to write this book. Uh, nobody's ever done it. Would you be willing to help me? And, like, the next day I woke up to emails. He had looped in, like, Michio Akamura, who was the main character artist on Diablo, uh, Matt Ullman, who, of course, composed the soundtrack everybody loves. Um, and so, you know, these people were enthusiastic. And, you know, from kind of all reaches, like, I, I would get guys who worked on Diablo 1, a lot of guys who worked on the Diablo 2 expansion and even down the line i mean blizzard north worked on two versions of diablo 3 and i got to talk to a lot of those guys while i was researching diablo 1 so i was kind of all over the map um and other people you know i would just network i, I would track them down on facebook on linkedin they probably thought i was stalking them uh i actually got david brevik's number from my uncle brad and i called him one night around dinner time which was you know kind of a, a dick move on my part but i didn't even <laughs> think about it because i was so nervous in fact, I remember uh, I said it all in a rush, like, hi, Dave, uh, this is David. My name is David, too. Isn't that cool? I would like to write a book about Diablo. Could I interview you? <gasps> and he was just like, uh, yeah, sure, okay. And, uh, you know, I would just, like, talking to him, I was like, hey, you know, Max and Eric Schaefer founded Blizzard North with you. Obviously, if I don't talk to all three of you, there's no book here, even if I talk to everyone else. And so, I mean, people were really, you know, supportive of the project. Uh, usually... Once th there were a few people who I kind of had to twist their arms. They had to know that they could they could trust me because you know if you're going to share part of your life story with someone, they obviously have to treat it with care. Um, but I'm, I'm really proud to say that I'm, I'm friends with all these guys, and and once they got to know me, they took it upon themselves to to help me with a lot of my networking. And so, kind of like Eric Sexton did for me, other people such as Rick Seiss and and Dave Brevik would. Uh, make phone calls, write emails, and I'd wake up to emails from other people I hadn't even tried to contact yet and saying, hey, I'm in. So it was, it was really nice that it snowballed. I think because, you know, Blizzard North has been defunct for about almost eight and a half years now. Uh, Diablo 1 is coming up uh, on its 17th anniversary, and so I think that, you know, one thing Dave, Max, and Eric told me was it was getting to the point where they were starting to forget a lot of these little details, and so they were really glad someone was making the effort to put all this stuff down on paper. So it's almost like a, an account more for them than it was just me wanting to tell the story. One of the reasons I can imagine some folks wouldn't want to participate or be part of a tell-all book, it gets down to such details, that the creation of anything, you know, there are embarrassing or dark moments that you want to forget or not go into. Uh, did you run into any of that? Did any of that make it into the book? Yes, uh, yes and yes to both questions. And uh, um, the, the interesting thing about them was, you know, <laughs> I think some people got worried because I would come to them with question after question after question about those dark moments. Most of them had to do with money. You know, Diablo took off. Some guys were driving sports cars, different sports cars to work every day. Others weren't. And, you know, if you see that, you start to think, well, man, I, I worked hard, too. I, we were all in the trenches together. Where's my Ferrari? 
Um, and so that caused some issue later on. And I think a lot of people got worried that I was going to dwell on those. But in fact, I wanted to make sure I got every detail uh, correct because those dark moments are going to be, you know, they'll sting a lot more if I get details wrong or just reading them, knowing that that's coming, remembering, oh, I remember this day, this month, this year. Um, uh, I just, I wanted to make sure not to editorialize. And, you know, really what I found is, you know, there were moments like that, especially, you know, financial issues that would, that really caused a rift in, in friendships that were otherwise stable. Um, but I only wrote about them if I felt they, they impacted the story in a way that impacted the history of Blizzard uh, North or Blizzard Entertainment. Um, and so I just was, you know, you got to be careful not to editorialize because I think that, you know, as human beings, we all love juicy stuff. We want gossip. But you have to make sure that you don't dwell on that and use that as like a bullet point to sell the book almost, you know. We're, so, so, you know, you, you collected all this information. You, you, know, you find these moments that, you know, again, you know, would make for a juicy story, but it's kind of just, you know, gossip that didn't necessarily impact the game's development or, or the studio structure. But, we, you know, what did you find actually stood out as moments in that that, that were worth telling or, and, and, and were indicative of a moment of, of struggle for the studio? Um, there was, you know, when uh, when Dave Maxineric sold a Condor and it became Blizzard North, I mean, they did get a lot of stock that they were able to sell and, and they were, you know, driving sports cars, buying houses. And, you know, that didn't sit well with a lot of people. Um, well, I, I wouldn't even say a lot of people. It, it, it was something that kind of simmered for a while and then boiled over later. But right off the bat, there were a couple of newer people. I mean, these these were all young guys in their 20s who... You know, dreamed of striking it rich, making this you know best-selling video game, and uh, you know a couple of them tried to organize a walkout, but they were the only ones who left because what was interesting is for most of the people on staff working on Diablo was so much more important than getting pissed off about money. Uh, and then of course you know most people were looking at it logically and saying Diablo is not even out yet. Why are we angry if we haven't sold any great games yet? I mean they sold Justice League Task Force for Sega Genesis, but that game came out near the end of the Genesis life cycle, and you know, people weren't really expecting more than pennies on the dollar for that. Uh, and so those issues really came into play more later uh, when games like StarCraft and Diablo II and WoW were really taking off. And uh, Blizzard actually did because of employee dissatisfaction, because even the owners of the company were losing a lot of money. All the money they were making, the majority, was going to their parent companies. And so they actually, uh, the Blizzard North founders and the Blizzard Entertainment founders kind of came together for a powwow and said, we need to institute a bonus program. And uh, that's an issue that I explore more in book two. But basically, uh, Blizzard instituted one of the most successful bonus programs in the industry where, uh, you know, royalties from games like Diablo 2 and StarCraft were manifested in checks for individual developers that were as big as those guys' yearly salary. So, you know... Um, a lot of restitution, I think, for people came later. But, of course, there were individuals who never really seemed satisfied, and, and that was kind of a dark cloud that always hung over the company and did eventually uh, tear it apart in some ways. So this, this isn't specifically related to uh, the content of the book, but as someone that you know is a writer, and I've thought in my head, I've got some ideas, I've thought about writing a book at some point. Like, logistically... Like, do you transcribe all of your stuff? Like, I don't, like, I've, I've always just thought about how you wrap your head around getting all of this material and then trying to find a narrative that you can uh, successfully bring the reader through. So I'm curious a little bit about 
not only the, the process of writing and finding a coherent narrative, but even just logistically how you grapple with all the material. I'm so excited that you asked that question because, you know, I think as, as writers, this is something maybe only we would care about, but hopefully someone else out there will too. Uh, I have hundreds of hours of interviews and yeah, I transcribed it all. I have individual transcripts for individual people, but what I would do is I, I decided to build what I called an information directory where I would, like, let's say going through the interview, let's say I talked with Dave Brevik about uh, Diablo. That was, that was like heading one. And then under that, we talked about, okay, turn-based version, real-time, conversion to real-time, uh, unique monsters, uh, and, I don't know, skeletons. You know, each of those were subheadings. And so, you know, I would build this in Word and then generate a table of contents. And then I would also put in keywords with hashtags, almost like, you know, Twitter um, popular words, where I would just type in hash Diablo 1, and I would jump right to that section, and then from there I could look at subsections and, and just find things easily. In terms of building a narrative, that was the trickiest part that I spent the most time on uh, because, you know, I kind of look at it as, like, I was playing with other people's toys. These were these were other people. I didn't want to, you know, manhandle their toys, mangle them. And so I spent a lot of time uh, talking with all these guys and asking questions, sometimes asking the same questions over because... Uh, if there was a, one subtitle for this book, it could have been, man, that happened a long time ago. <laughs> it, it was, I mean, so many people had trouble remembering things, so I would have to bring the questions up several times, and, and nobody got frustrated with that. They actually appreciated it, because what I would do is, like, I would talk to Dave Brevik and ask him something, and then I would talk to Eric Schaefer or Stieg Hedlund or Rick Seiss and ask them the same questions, and eventually I would start to get the same answers. So I'd go back to Dave and say, oh, you know, Stieg said this or Rick said this, and Dave would go, Oh, that doesn't sound right. So I would go back to the other guy and they'd go, yeah, you know, Dave's account, I think that is right because I remember blah, 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 blah. And so I would just go back to the information directory and kind of cross out the stuff that ended up being inaccurate uh, and, and you fill it in with uh, what really went down. And then there are also things where sometimes there really is more than one version of the truth. So I would go to a lot of effort in the book to to put in both versions because, you know, one thing about Blizzard North and entertainment was that they were such egalitarian places where, you know, titles didn't hold a lot of weight, at least not at first. Like, if, if you were an artist, that didn't mean you couldn't go to the programmers and say, you know, I'm working on this monster and I have an idea for this attack. And so it, with all that going on every day, sometimes 12 to 16-hour uh, shifts, if you will, for seven days a week during crunch time, it's really hard to keep track of who made the zombie. I don't know, you know. Um and so I would just really read through the narrative and outline very carefully over and over again. And uh, that was just kind of the skeleton. Then I would start writing a chapter and I would realize, oh, you know, I got this order of events totally wrong. So on the fly, I would just adjust it. And I actually revised the book six or seven times with the early revisions being major, like tearing out whole chunks, rewriting whole chunks. But as I went on, I got things down pat and just kind of smoothed it out. And, and you know, I, I can say that for nonfiction, uh, definitely talk to as many people as possible, cross-reference, you know, bug them because that's kind of what they sign on for, <laughs> whether they know it or not, and you'll eventually just get the correct account of events down. We mentioned this was the first of three books, so was that always the plan, or like, did you think it was going to be a service if you crammed it all into one? Definitely the latter. I, I, I It was intended as one book, even as, as early as uh, this year, like around January, February, um, last fall, around Halloween, I released a full chapter on shacknews.com just because I, 
I did a lot of freelance writing for Shaq, and that's kind of the you know one of the communities I belong to, and so I wanted to do something with them. And I had a lot of people write in from a lot of different uh, websites um, who had picked up on the story, saying, "Hey, you're going to cover Diablo 3. And actually, I had not planned to do that. Um, my goal was to write about both of the blizzards, um, but enough, just get enough content from Blizzard Entertainment to kind of help, uh, you know, compare and contrast elements of Blizzard North. They were the, mo- the main focus of the book, and so draft one of Stay Well and Listen ended in August 2005 when the studio closed its doors. Um, but enough people wanted to know about Diablo 3, and I wanted to know about Diablo 3 as a fan, that I thought, uh, well, there are three Diablos, and if you look at them, uh, each one was made in a in such a different era. I mean, the game industry changed so quickly that when you have a trilogy like Diablo or Warcraft, you can look at each game and think back, man, we were so different back then. The team was smaller, our ideas were different, our uh, methodologies were different, and so it just made more sense to go the trilogy route. In fact, it was my wife who talked me into it. She's my business partner. We founded... Uh, Digital Monument pressed together because I I wanted to uh, write this book and and kind of publish it myself so that I had more control over the format, you know, being able to put in a lot of bonus content and and structure it the way I wanted it. And, uh, and, you know, we have more books planned after this one. And she was one who said, I think if you keep this as one volume, it's going to kill a lot of trees and you're not going to be able to release it until like 2025. And I said, yeah, you know, I mean, as a writer, I'm sure you can relate eventually. You just have to put out something like it starts out really personal to you, but eventually you just want to show it to people. And maybe you want to get paid for it, too. Like, this is what I want to do for a living, so I needed to start making something off it because I'd spent so much money on it. And so um, I kind of resisted at first because the idea of serializing a nonfiction story was just foreign to me. I'm like, what is this, a fantasy series? Do I need to make this, like, 12 books, you know? But it just made more sense, and, and so we eventually decided on the trilogy route, and I'm actually really happy with it because Say Well and Listen book one alone has over 100 pages of, of bonus content. And if I'd have tried to put the whole story in there, I might have ended up with 50 pages of bonus material alone just because you you know, you know have to keep the word count kind of reasonable. So I think the trilogy structure worked out really well. Cool. Well, David, I appreciate you taking some time to chat with me today uh, about the book. And uh, good luck getting the other two together. <laughs>